You know, not everybody shows up again on a Sunday night. They missed out, didn't they? What a blessing. I don't know if all, where all these parts go, Joel, but I'm going to stick them here. I, I mean, I just feel full in my heart right now. What a, what a neat, neat time. I want to exercise a pastoral privilege, and that is to ask you to pray for a friend of mine. On my way here today, I called a friend who last week found out that he's a, he's a youth pastor, and he found out that he had been laid off, and it is just a hard time. And so I called him on my way here. It's been a week, and it's a Sunday, and that's really hard. And we talked about it a little bit. And, I mean, Eddie, to me, he is, he's you. He's a 40-year-old version of Eddie. He is a person who, he, he doesn't love administration. He loves people, right? And he's a guy that he is, his office always, he never, one of the reasons he never got things done is because he's always counseling people. His phone is constantly ringing. He, it's wrong. He did get things done. But he was constantly busy counseling people because people flocked to him, hurting people, people like William Cooper, who I know, I know several people that were severely depressed that would go to my friend and ask just to talk and just for him to pray. And so now he's found out that he's, he doesn't have a job and he's questioning, well, what's God's, what's God's doing? Am, am I in the wrong field? Am I really a minister? And it's a hard time for him. And I just kind of think, Eddie, I don't really know if you ever had a time where you thought maybe ministry is not for me, but Baker County and Rayford Road would be a much worse place if you had walked away then. And I think the same thing is true of my friend. If I want God to strengthen his heart and to encourage him and say, when you have a ministry and a love for people, God uses that. And so I'm, I'm going I'm to pray for him. And I'll just ask you guys, if you'll pray with me for my friend. His name's Greg. If you'll pray for him, I'd appreciate it. Dear Lord, I am so thankful for my friend Greg. And I remember Paul in Philippians who said that he thinks... God, for his friends in Philippians, because he knows that the work that you began in them, you would be faithful and to finish and to complete that work. And I believe the exact same thing about my friend, Greg. I pray that you will encourage him. It is a hard time for him and his heart right now, and as he considers his future, remind him that you aren't finished, that you have ministry, you have taken care of people that you love, uh, and you're going to give him that responsibility. We just pray that you encourage him and let him see that you are still involved in his life. And pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. I thank you for, if you remember, Greg is his name. If you remember him throughout the week and we'll pray for him, I'm confident that God has a lot left for him. Uh, we're going to move to Matthew. We've taken a long break, and I'm going to try to focus my heart back on Matthew because it is just overflowing with William. I'm glad we've said Cooper. It's spelled Cowper, right? And I, I'm glad that you said it before me so I didn't look like, <laughs> this guy said Cowper. It's William Cooper. Um, but I bet William Cooper would feel a lot like we're going to look at Matthew 11 tonight. We'll see John the Baptist, and I wonder if William Cooper would have felt like John the Baptist. We're actually going to get back into our study. We took a long break from Matthew, uh, and that was just your graciousness to let me work on my dissertation. It's almost finished, and I'm going to get back in Matthew and try to be regular through that again. And since we've taken a long break, let me try to do a little bit of review before we get into Matthew 11, just so we can remember where we've been. If you remember Matthew 1 through 4, we can summarize that as the presentation of the king. Matthew 1 through 4 was all about Jesus before he really started his ministry. In fact, we saw Jesus presented as the Messiah. Over and over and over, Matthew said, this is the one that the Old Testament had talked about. Right in the very beginning, we saw his genealogy. This is the genealogy of the Christ. And he was the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David. We see that he was exiled, and he went to Egypt 
the same way that, remember when Moses was basically threatened to be killed by Pharaoh and he was sent out in the bulrushes in Egypt and then they all, Jesus' really similar story. Remember Herod said, I'm going to kill everyone, all the male children under two. Jesus fled to Egypt and you're starting to see Jesus is this new Israel. He's going to walk through the path of Israel, but instead of being like Israel, he is going to succeed in every way they failed. And you see that Jesus is going to be the one who all the promises in the Old Testament where God says, I will take care of sin and I will set up a perfect kingdom in which there's no suffering and no tears. Jesus is the one that's going to bring those promises to fruition. And that was the first four chapters. This is the king. He's finally here. He's the one you've been waiting for. And then we get to Matthew 5 through 7. If Matthews 1 through 4 was the presentation of the king, Matthew 5 through 7 could be the proclamation of the king or the message of the king. That's the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and there's one really big idea there. And the really big idea is that if you want to be part of Jesus' kingdom, you have to be a part by humbling yourself and trusting in him. You have to be poor in spirit, hungry for righteousness, because you know that you're not righteous. And then you say, Jesus, make me righteous. And the Sermon on the Mount showed, and sometimes it showed us how we fail in our righteousness, and other times it taught, to, it taught us to pray that God would make us righteous and to depend on him and rely on him. And at the very end, it talked about these two houses, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's one house that was built on sand and one house that was built on the rock. And the sand was an example for a person that said, I'm going to get to heaven based on my good deeds, my ability to keep the law. And God says, when the storm comes, that house is going to fall. You're going to realize you're not as good as you thought you were. And you're going to think, there is no way I'm getting to heaven based on my goodness. But there's another man. There's a man who builds his house on a rock. And the rock is not my goodness, but the goodness of Jesus. And when the storm comes and knocks you down, you say, that's okay. My foundation is the one who could not be knocked down. And that is the person that spends eternity in heaven with God and with Christ. After the message of the king, we saw the miracles of the king. Right In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus says, I'm the Messiah and now he starts to prove it. Miracles. I'll just fill you guys in. Joel and Lacey make fun of me for saying miracles instead of miracles, I think. <laughs> they think I'm a, I sound like a redneck, which I think when one finger's pointing, there's three pointing back. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, the miracles of the king. <laughs> I'm getting better. The miracles of the king. Jesus proved himself. He said, what man can do what I can do? We saw Jesus fix the sight of blind people, deaf people. He restored their hearing. Dead people he raised from the grave, right? Jesus spoke to storms, stormy. The seas were riled up and the storms and the winds were blowing and Jesus spoke and it calmed down. Jesus says, I have control over everything. No one has that. I'm unique because I can do miracles. I can do miracles. And now we're in, we started before our little break of section 10 through 12. And this section is commonly referred to as the mission of the king. The mission of the king. And we saw in 10, especially, Jesus had sent out his disciples. And he said, go first to the lost uh, sheep of Israel. And Jesus basically teaches us, I didn't come into this world simply to be here. I'm here on a mission, and that is to save sinners. Jesus came for people who need him. What we find out today, though, is that not everyone responded correctly to Jesus, right? Jesus and his followers faced persecution and rejection, right? And because of that, one of Jesus' followers, John the Baptist, begins to have some questions and to think, what's going on? And so in the section that we're going to read today, uh, we're going to see Jesus talk to John the Baptist and, and a little bit more broadly and say, you need to know something. 
the entire kingdom rests not on anything but me. I should say that more clearly. The entire kingdom of heaven rests purely on what we believe and what we trust in with regard to who Jesus Christ is. That's it. That's it. In fact, our main verse today, probably if we wanted to summarize everything we're going to talk about, is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 6. Verse 6 says, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. That was the King James. I'll read it in the Holman Christian standard. It says, If anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. The same verse is verse 6 in the NIV says, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And what Jesus is saying is, at the end of the day, your eternal state has everything to do with your response to me. I'm the big deal here. It's Jesus. Christ is the centerpiece of Christianity. That's why it's called Christianity. Christ is central to Christianity. What we're going to see is really kind of three major sections here in Matthew 11. In one section, we're going to see a picture of a person who almost did stumble or be offended at Jesus. In other words, he almost fell away from his faith because of Jesus not living up to his expectations. That's John the Baptist. But John the Baptist doesn't. He almost, but he doesn't fall away. And Jesus says, this is the greatest man who ever lived, who was ever born of a woman. After that example, we're going to see another. And Jesus says, this is what's true of most of the people in my generation. They do stumble because of me. They miss out on God and they miss out on God's kingdom because they don't get me. Right? So we're going to see these two pictures. And then at the very end, in the third section, Jesus is going to say, if you want to get me, right, if you want to know who I am and get to God and be blessed, then here's three big ideas, three big points of what it's going to take for you to know me. So with that in mind, let's read all of Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11, I'll start in verse 1. And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and preach in their cities. And now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Are thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What ye went out, uh, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft, soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women here hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? That is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, He has the devil. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man, gluttonous, and a wine-bibber, and a friend of publicans and sinners. Wine-bibber, kind of 
made me laugh a little bit. But wisdom is justified of her children. He said, then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. He said, woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, you shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid things from the wise and prudent and, and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, all things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomever, whomever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Dear Lord, toward the end of this passage, you tell us that we will not know the Father unless the Son reveals it that the things of which we read are hidden to the wise and are revealed and opened to the babes, to the simple. And so we ask right now that you reveal them to us. We humble ourselves and recognize that we don't have all the answers and we don't know everything that we would like to know, but we know that you do. And so we ask you to open our minds and open our hearts so that we can hear your word this evening. In your name I pray, amen. As I mentioned earlier, the 11th chapter can be divided roughly into three, three big sections. And the first one is in verses 1 through 15. The second was 16 through 24. The third one was 25 through 30. And so we're going to just walk through this passage one section at a time. Uh, and the first section, we might be tempted to think that this section is primarily about John the Baptist. Because he shows up in this section a lot. But it's not about John the Baptist. It's about John the Baptist's understanding of Jesus, right? Matthew didn't write this so that we would walk away knowing John the Baptist. Matthew wrote this so that we would walk away knowing what John the Baptist knows about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. My hope is that as we study this and, and read this, we'll say Jesus is who he claimed to be. So let's start. In verse 2, you see that John the Baptist is in prison. Um, he's in prison. There's an author, actually, that I read named John Bloom. Uh, he did a really good job of summarizing kind of where John the Baptist was when he wrote. And so I, I want to read. It's fairly lengthy. But I want to read to you John Bloom summarizing what was going on with John the Baptist when he sent these messengers. John Bloom started his article. He said, are you struggling with doubts in the middle of painful circumstances? He said, so did John the Baptist. As he sat in Herod Antipas's prison, waiting likely execution, he was afflicted with doubts about Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This was a surprising question coming from John the Baptist. And it's unclear exactly when John first consciously knew that Jesus was the son of God whose way he had come to prepare. The apostle John quotes him as saying, I myself did not know him even when he baptized Jesus in John chapter one. So this is remarkable because John's mother, Elizabeth, had known. She knew because John announced it to her in utero by leaping when she heard Mary's voice, right? Was she not allowed to tell him? We don't know. 
But regardless, John had known even before he knew. Isn't that interesting? John had known even before he knew. Anyway, he goes on, what is clear is that when the revelation came, uh, it was an overwhelming experience for John. That day when Jesus approached him at the Jordan near Bethany, where Jesus was baptized, John couldn't contain the shout, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And with awe and trembling hands, he baptized his Lord and he saw the Spirit descend and remain on him. That day had also marked the beginning of the end of John's ministry. From that point, he had joyfully directed people away from himself to follow Jesus, and they had. But now he sat in Antipas's filthy prison. He had expected this. Prophets who rebuke sinful kings usually do not fare well. But unfortunately, he had not been an exception. Herodias wanted him dead, and John could see no reason why she would be denied her wish. What he hadn't expected was to be tormented by such oppressive doubts and fears. Since the Jordan, John had not doubted that Jesus was the Christ, but stuck alone in this putrid cell, he was assaulted by horrible, accusing thoughts. What if he had been wrong? There had been many false prophets in Israel. What made him so sure that he wasn't one? What if he had led thousands astray? There had been false messiahs. What if Jesus was just another? So far, Jesus' ministry wasn't exactly what John had always imagined the Messiah to look like. Could this imprisonment be be God's judgment of John? It felt as if God had left him and the devil himself had taken his place, and he tried to recall all the prophecies and signs that had seemed so clear to him before, but it was difficult to think straight, Comfort just wouldn't stick to his soul. Doubts buzzed around his brain like flies around his face. The thought of being executed for the sake of righteousness and justice he could bear. But he could not bear the thought that he might have been wrong about Jesus. His one task was to prepare the way of the Lord. And if he had gotten that wrong, his ministry and his life had been in vain. But even with his doubts, There remained in John a deep, unshakable trust in Jesus. Jesus would tell him the truth. He just needed to hear from him again. So he sent two of his closest disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's John Bloom's reconstruction of what must have been going on in John the Baptist's mind. And obviously we don't know exactly John's mind, But that seems to be reasonable. John was in a prison, in a place where he was separated from friends and family and his ministry, and death was almost certain, and it did come for him. And he thought, the Messiah is Jesus. But my freedom that was promised to come with the Messiah isn't here. I'm going to die, it seems, and it's just not adding up. Maybe, John's thinking, Maybe I've missed something. Maybe I've made a mistake, but he trusts Jesus enough to ask. So he sends his messengers to ask, and they'd say, so tell us the the deal. Are you the Messiah, or are we looking for the wrong person? Do we need to look for someone else? And there's one really neat thing here, and that's that Jesus does not scold them. He does not say, you foolish doubters. Instead, Jesus welcomes them warmly, answers his question from the Old Testament. We'll look at Jesus' answer in a second. But Jesus warmly answers their questions. Jesus is not afraid of their doubts. Now, in a little bit, we're going to see some doubters that Jesus scolds very harshly. But John the Baptist comes to Jesus and says, I just don't understand. And Jesus, with warm open arms, said, let me help you. Let me explain what's going on. And to me, that is so encouraging. That Jesus says, if you have legitimate questions, I'm I'm here to answer them. In fact, that's why I'm doing these miracles. That's That's why I've come to earth is so that you can trust me and be confident in your trust. Jesus welcomes your questions about him. That is encouraging to me.
let's look at Jesus' response. Remember that the, John's disciples are asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? So let's back up just a little bit and try to remember what, what do we mean when we use the word Messiah? Right? What does it mean to say, are you the Messiah? Are you the expected one? And to know that, to understand what that word means, you really kind of have to have an overview of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the story of the coming Messiah. Right? That's the point of the Old Testament. The Old Testament begins in Genesis 1 with this perfect creation and in Genesis 3 with the fall of that perfect creation. Adam and Eve disobey God and they eat a fruit of a tree that they were forbidden to eat of and immediately they're separated from God. Immediately, death begins to work in creation. And it seems like every good thing that God created is going down. It's being destroyed. But in Genesis 3, God makes a promise. He says that one day I am going to send a son, the seed of a woman, and he is going to crush the serpent's head. The serpent is the figure who tempted Adam and Eve to eat that fruit. And he says that all of the troubles that were caused by that temptation in that fall, he says, I'm going to destroy it all. And then over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we start to see promises that one day there's a man, there's a son that's coming. And when he comes, he's going to make everything right. And sometimes we get little promises. Sometimes we get big ones. Abraham is an example of a big one. God says, I'm going to send, a, you're going to have seed, you're going to have many nations, but there's going to be a seed that's going to bless the entire world. The entire world is going to be blessed by the descendant of Abraham. That's why Matthew wanted us to know Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. And it keeps telling us and telling us, again, David. David was another big promise. God tells David, I'm going to send you a son, and this son is going to have a forever kingdom a perfect kingdom in which justice and truth reign perfectly and nothing will overthrow this kingdom. And we start looking for this son of Abraham, this son of David, who will be a forever king, who will be a seed that will bless all the nations and he will take care of sin and put everything right. And they're asking, John's disciples are asking, is that who you are? Are you the one that we've been waiting for this whole time is gonna make everything right? Everything that our sin is ruined and destroyed, are you going to be the one that makes it right? And Jesus says, basically, yes. But let me show you how he does it. Jesus answers her question by quoting two Old Testament passages, really three, but in, in the first one, he quotes Isaiah uh, 35 and Isaiah 61. But I'm going, to, I'm going to read for you Isaiah 35, a section out of that, so you can see how Jesus says, do you remember the Old Testament? I'm doing the things that were promised there. Let me actually read to you. This is Isaiah 35. I'll start in verse 3. It says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and he will, uh, with the recompense of God, and he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf shall be unstopped. They shall, uh, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy for the waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. <clears throat> in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become the reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Uh, Even if they are fools, they won't go astray. No lion will be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Y'all, do y'all recognize that from a song? Yeah. We, I, we sang that growing up. I asked Cannon if she, if she recognized it, and I think she said vaguely. We, we sang it, let the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing. I won't sing anymore. 
But Isaiah 35, and that song I sang all my life, and I didn't realize that that song was saying a Messiah is coming and he's going to set everything right. And Jesus quoted it. And he says, well, that, song, that, that passage from Isaiah promised when the Messiah comes, blind eyes are going to start seeing and deaf ears are going to start hearing. And Jesus says, y'all saw it, right? He tells his disciples, John's disciples, just tell them what you're seeing. The promises of the Old Testament are happening right here, right now in front of your face. He's saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. And he's proving it to them by pointing them back to the book that promises the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is saying, yes, that's, I am who you thought I was. <clears throat> but there is a problem. And for John, I think the problem is he expected those things, right? He expected everything to be set right. What he didn't expect is that when the Messiah came, he would still be in jail and still be suffering. How can the Messiah come and bring all those promises and there still be jail and beheadings of the prophets of God? How can that exist? And that's where Jesus says, but let me also quote for you another passage, also in Isaiah. Let me quote for you Isaiah chapter 8. And I'm going to read a little bit broader section so you get some context. I'll start in verse 11 in Isaiah 8. Isaiah said, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They, they shall be snared and taken. When Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended, that word offended, um, it's from a Greek term, which is oft, also means stumbling block or skandalizo, as a cause of offense or stumbling or to fall away. And it seems that Jesus is quoting from the Greek translation of this Hebrew passage in Isaiah 8. He's saying, do you remember what I said in Isaiah 8? That even when the Messiah comes, there are going to be people who say, this is just a conspiracy. This isn't something we should believe. And they're going to discount me and they will act violently toward me. And these people will reject me and they will, be, they will fall away and they will be taken. And he says, in Isaiah 8, he says, stand strong. Even in the face of that, stand strong because this is something that comes along when the Messiah comes. That the Messiah is going to come to a people who will reject him. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying is, yes, I am bringing about the promises that you remembered in Isaiah 35, but what you've forgotten is that part of that is that the world will reject their Messiah. That when the Messiah comes, the world will say, this is ridiculous. We don't want any part of this. And the man who came to die for the sins of the world will be rejected by the world whom he came to die for. He's saying, John, you just didn't have the whole picture. And you have to remember that if your Messiah is going to die, then the followers of that Messiah will also potentially die as well. So this isn't a sign that I'm not who I said I am. In fact, this is a sign that I am exactly who I said I am. The Messiah, just like Isaiah 8 said, will be rejected by the people he comes to save. And therefore, the prophets, the people who are his mouthpiece, can expect to be rejected by that same world who rejects their Messiah. After that, Jesus does not say, silly John, stupid John didn't know the whole Bible. He looks over to, Jesus looks over to his followers and says, don't misunderstand John is a great man, right? I haven't discounted John for not understanding everything, for not knowing everything. John brought me an honest question. I gave him an answer. But John is the greatest 
of any man ever born of a woman. And I just love that Jesus doesn't condemn John for his lack of knowledge or his lack of understanding. He was willing to compassionately answer real questions that John had. He says that John the Baptist, excuse me, is greater than the prophets. Because when the prophets were around in the Old Testament, they were promising the Messiah that was coming. But John the Baptist was the prophet who talked about the Messiah that is here. What a neat thing. John's the last prophet to proclaim the coming Messiah. He says, the Messiah isn't coming, the Messiah is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He has the best job as far as being a prophet goes. But he also reminds all of his audience, from the first day to the last, the world has attacked the prophets of God. When you are a spokesperson for God, it doesn't come without a price. Because you are in a world that is hostile to the God who made it and loves it. Made us and loves us. There is a little caveat when he says that John's the greatest man ever to be born of a woman. He says, notwithstanding or except whoever is least in the kingdom. If you're least in the kingdom, you're even greater than John. I'm going to hold that because I think you'll see that worked out again in our third section. Let's move to the second section. If John was an example of a person who almost stumbled over the question of who is Jesus, is he the Messiah? Our second section is going to be an example of people who do. They miss Jesus and they stumble over him being the Messiah. Let's read again just to refresh our memories, verses 16 through 24. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath the devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, thou shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In the first section, John the Baptist almost stumbled. In the second section, the masses, the people of Jesus' generation, do stumble. And what we see, I think the big idea here is they don't stumble because they're uncertain about the truths of Jesus. They stumble because they don't like the truths of Jesus. John wasn't sure what was going on. He needed clarity and information. The people who rejected Jesus in this second section, they reject him because they don't like the product that he's offering. Jesus compares them to spoiled kids. One commentary I read kind of compared them to kids on a playground where you would see kids pouting on the side that nobody will play with them. And you look up and you see all these other kids playing and even happy to let them join in the game. And you find out it's not that nobody will play with them. It's that the kid's pouting because nobody's playing the game they want to play. Right? Jesus says, God sent two messengers. One messenger was in sack, or one messenger was in um, prophet's clothes. He wouldn't eat or drink. He was fasting. He was solemn and serious. And they rejected him as too serious. Dale Brunner, he's a commentator I wrote, said, <clears throat> you see, John came neither eating or drinking as other people do. And people are saying he's a fanatic, literally saying he's a demon. John is too alarmist. 
He has a thing about wrath and fire and judgment. He has too little sense of humor or too little polish, too little balance. And so they don't take him serious. But then the son of man comes and he eats and drinks as others do. And people say, look at this greedy fellow, this drunkard. He's a friend of collaborators and immoral people. He's too social or he's too common for the taste of the decision makers in Israel. Jesus does not seem spiritual enough to them. He doesn't fast regularly or doesn't, he apparently has few scruples about what he will eat and drink and who he will eat and drink with. They say, in fact, that's the worst thing for them is that Jesus seems to hang out with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus says, make up your mind. He says, you have John and you reject him as too serious and you have Jesus and you reject him as too common. He says, you're like spoiled children. The problem for you isn't that you haven't been told the truth. The problem is that you don't like the truth that you've been given. You're like kids who say, nobody will play with me, but the, re- the truth is that nobody will play the game you want to play. Jesus says, you are judged not for your lack of information, but for your unwillingness to accept the truth that you've been given. In the schoolyard, when you don't play the game and you sit on the side and pout, you miss out on the blessing of having fun playing the game. Right? Anybody who works with kids knows that the pouty kid is the least blessed kid. Because there's a lot of fun to be had if you'll just have it. Similar, Jesus says, you who reject Jesus, you who reject me, you're missing out on the blessing. But the blessing you miss out on here is much, much more serious. The people who miss out on Jesus, he says, deserve hell. And what he says to the Jews there had to be shocking. The Jews would have thought of places like Sodom and Gomorrah or Tyre and Sidon. It's like the most immoral cities in history. And Jesus says, what you have done by rejecting me is worse than the immorality of those cities. You think of yourself as a pretty good, morally pretty good. And Jesus says, I'm not looking for morally pretty good. I'm not interested in you being marginally more moral than Sodom and Gomorrah. What I would like is for you to say, I need Jesus to play the game that Jesus came to play. And if you say, no, Jesus, this is my terms or no terms, then Jesus says, you're worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus is not impressed with our high standards that are too high for him and too high for John the Baptist. Let's move to our third section. In the first section, there was a man who almost stumbled, but Jesus lifted him up. He gave him the information and lifted him up. He didn't stumble. In the second section, there were people that did stumble. And what I want to know in this third section is what's the difference? How can I be the person who doesn't stumble? And I'm going to read this section. I think we'll see three big points. Let me read it with you. I'll start in verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it, so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In these last few verses, let me bring out three things that distinguish the people who stumble over Jesus and the people who don't. Three things that distinguish the people who accept Jesus and reject him, or offended at Jesus, or not offended. The first one is Jesus says that the people who are offended by Jesus have not had their eyes opened by God. Right? Jesus is hidden to the wise and the prudent, but is revealed to the simple. 
And so that's why this morning, the first song we sang this morning was Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. Because we believe that in our pride and arrogance, that we have so closed our minds and our hearts to God that we need God to work a miracle in our hearts for us to experience and know Jesus. That's why when I pray to God, I don't pray for my lost friends. I don't pray that they're smart enough. I don't pray that they're good enough. I pray that God intervenes. I want a God who will step into the lives of people and open the hearts of blind people and lost people and change us from the inside. Jesus says, if you want to be a person who gets me, if you want to be a person who's not offended by me, be a person who says, God, open up the eyes of my heart. Let me see you. Ask God to work inside of you. There's a second principle And that's that we need to humble ourselves, right? It's the people who are wise and prudent in their own eyes that are too blind to see. And it's the people who are like babes, the simple people who Jesus says, that's who I'm going to reveal myself to. And the premise seems to be Jesus is looking for humble people. Jesus is looking for someone who says, I don't have it all together. I think that is what distinguished John the Baptist and the rest of the people. John the Baptist is in prison and he is struggling. He doesn't know what's going on. Why is he suffering? And so he says, I don't have all the answers. And he goes to Jesus for help. He's humbled and he's asking for Jesus to intervene. But the rest of the people sat over John the Baptist and Jesus as their judges. They're telling Jesus if he meets up. They're telling John if he meets their standards. Jesus says, I have compassion for the humble who says I need help. I have no compassion for the person that says, I'll judge God. Humble yourself. If you want to know Christ, humble yourself. And the third third point, I think, really rests on the second. Jesus is looking for people who will depend on him. If you want to be a person who gets Jesus and is not offended by Jesus, then you need to be a person who comes unto him if you are laboring and you're heavy laden and relying on and depending on him to give you rest. You need to come to him and take his yoke upon you so that he carries your load. Jesus is looking for someone who says, this life is too big for me. I need you to do it. I'd like to end on this point um, and I think an example might help <clears throat> to kind of understand what's going on here. The, the church I went to, I lived in Texas for a few years, and the church I went, the pastor there was an old football player. And so every illustration he had had to do with football and his memories of being in college. Football players love their football days. And so he was, uh, he was that way. And one of his stories, it, it was actually in college at the University of North Texas that he became a Christian. And several other guys kind of started becoming a Christian on that football team. And he said one of them was a safety on the team. He was super popular. You know, usually you think the quarterback is the most, you know, the standout popular guy, but it was a safety. Every girl wanted to date him. He was the best looking guy. He had the best dressed guy. He seemed smart and funny. And he was just the coolest guy around. And so our pastor, his name was Tom Nelson. Tom invited this friend of his, to go to a Campus Crusade for Christ meeting. Campus Crusade for Christ is a college group. It's actually where uh, I was at a different school and a, a different day, but that's where I kind of started my walk with God as well. And he invited his friend to this meeting, and after the meeting, they start talking about it. And Tom, our, my pastor, says to the, his friend, well, what did you think? 
And the guy says, well, to be honest with you, I mean, the meeting was fine. And the guy, I guess the guy had just become a Christian or was kind of processing Christianity. He said, the meeting seemed fine, but to be honest with you, the people there kind of seemed, and then you could tell, Tom Nelson said he kind of like hemmed and hauled trying to find a nice way to say it. And Tom Nelson said, let me help you. The word you're looking for is losers. He's like, they're just not cool, are they? And the guy's like, well, yeah, that's it. That's what I'm saying. They're just not very cool people. And Tom's like, what you're going to find is that that's the secret to Christianity. He said, these people are here precisely because they say, we don't have it all together. So that's the reason they're there. They're there because they say, I have messed my life up to the degree that I know I can't accomplish my life without the help of God intervening. He said, and, and Tom Nelson looked at his friend and said, you will never, ever grow in your walk until you realize that you're a loser too. Said, You'll never grow. <laughs> Jesus in chapter nine said, I didn't come for the righteous, but for the sinners, for the unrighteous. And that is the secret of or the central idea of what it means to be a Christian. We started, Joel, with William Cowper. And I think it's interesting that he was in an institution. Like maybe he didn't understand reality very well. And I wonder possibly if maybe he understood reality a little bit better than you and I do. Maybe he was so struck by the fact that he was helpless and weak and sinful and not good on his own. And that's where Jesus said, that's where I come in. Those are the people that I've come for. It's us who think, I really got it all together. I'm not like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah. I basically have my life together. Jesus says, you're the people who will never see me. Because you're wise in your own eyes. You're prudent in your own eyes. If you want to know Christ, you have to say, I need Christ. I came to be a savior. I came to be a savior. And I'm only here for people who need saving. I'm going to close in prayer. Um, Before I do, let me just try to to bring up three three application points. And we've, we've already mention them, but I just want to make them big, big banner points. How do you respond to a message like this? One of those, I think, is begging. First, that God will open your eyes. The song we sang this morning in church was, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, and you sing that. God, help me see myself the way you see me, and help me see Christ the way you see him. Help me see through godly eyes. The second point is humility. Recognize that you are not everything your mama thought you were. You need help. You're a sinner. Or maybe you are who your mama thought you were. (laughs) Depends on your mom. The third point is depend. The third point is say, Jesus, I can't do it. And evangelism. We talk about how it's not enough to simply know that I'm a sinner and know that Christ died for me, that we must individually receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and then he will take control of and ownership of our lives and will save us from our sins. That third step of dependence is not simply saying, I recognize that I'm weak, but coming to Jesus and saying, take my yoke upon you. His yoke is easy. Yoke me with you. Take my burdens is asking Jesus to intervene in your life. Let me pray.